spreading Cajun across the nation, pushing the brand across the land. Welcome to Ragin Review, made by the fans for the fans. Cajun Nation, what's poppin'? Matt Miguez here. Welcome to Ragin' Review. As always, brought to you by Priority Access, Urgent Care, Russo Exploration, Shilling Distributing, and Award Master, Josh Jagno, Man About Town, joins me. Man About Town, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm well. Uh, that was a whole lot of fun, that interview we just did. What an awesome uh, guy Adam is. I mean, that, that was so fun. I, I can't think of another word but fun. He was fun. Yeah, you know, Adam, I mean... You know we're we're gonna, we're going to present you guys this interview in just a few minutes. Uh, we we were joined by Adam Amin of formerly of ESPN and currently of Fox Sports and NBC Sports Chicago. He's the TV play-by-play announcer for the Chicago Bulls, as well as doing college football and college basketball with Fox Sports. You know, Josh, right off the top, talk, talking about Adam, I, I didn't realize how extensive his broadcasting career was. He's been everywhere. I mean, literally, it, it was fun to see how his career has evolved over the years. And, I mean, like you can see in the first few minutes, those uh, <laughs> those minor league ballpark stories, I'm telling you, man, anybody that's done the minor league circuit, always a good listen, always a good interview because they've been down and dirty in the actual behind-the-scenes, uh, you know, making no money, sleeping on the bus, 3 a.m. here, 2 a.m. there. It's just great. It's good stuff. Yeah, you know, there, there's no doubt about it. Like we said, we were joined by Adam Amin, and, you know, one thing that was cool that we got to show him was we played the clips from his 2018 Final Four calls, you know, the, the semifinals and the championship game-winning shots by, by the Notre Dame Fighting Irish to win the 2018 College Basketball National Championship on the women's side. You know, do having like I said, having the resume that he's had and you know, in May, leaving ESPN for Fox Sports, that kind of rocked the the sports world a little bit. It was definitely unexpected. Fox is building up uh, quite the roster of play-by-play broadcasters, uh, radio talent. Fox has really taken a step forward in the last five to ten years. Now, Adam Amin is just another excellent addition. Uh, and conversely, ESPN is just losing talent. You know, and not to knock ESPN, ESPN's been uh, one hell of a, a story, and they basically took. Sports and made it a business, so I don't want to knock them. I don't want to knock them in any way. I mean, they've served us well, but they're losing. They're hemorrhaging talent, and uh, I don't know if they can recover, man. Maybe they got a little too ambitious, Disney did, when they purchased ESPN, and now they're feeling the effects of, you know, the current world that we live in. I don't, I don't know, but it, Adam at, at Fox is going to be an asset to Fox. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. If you don't follow Adam Amin on Twitter, it is very simple, at Adam Amin. On the Twitterverse, uh, like I said, you know, very, very fun interview. It was about an hour, and that hour seemed to fly by very, very quickly. Hour of gold. It's um, great. So, yeah, I mean, let, let's get right to it. Uh, we'll we'll take a break. We'll have a quick message from our sponsors, and then we'll just go ahead and dive right into the into the Adam Amin interview. Love it. Let's do it. So stay tuned, Cajun Nation, right here, Rage and Review. 
Chris Russo of Russo Exploration encourages you to donate to the Raging Cajun Athletic Foundation. The RCAF, the official fundraising arm of Louisiana Athletics, supports over 400 student-athletes across 16 NCAA sports. You can invest in the RCAF today for as little as $5 a month. Just go to myrcaf.org to get started or call 337-851-RCAF. As always, donations to the RCAF are tax-deductible. Your investment today will enrich the lives of every athlete that puts on the vermilion and white. Go Cajuns! Priority Access Urgent Care, located in the Winwood Shopping Center at 2912 Johnston Street in Lafayette, will provide you with a patient-centered experience with a personal touch. With over 35 years of healthcare experience, President Owner Ed Haney will provide you with exceptional and affordable care for minor injuries, illnesses, and occupational health, offering vaccines and physicals, on-site x-rays, EKG, and lab services, as well as testing for flu, strep, and COVID-19. Now accepting all major medical insurance, including Medicaid, Medicare, and VA insurance. Open seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Priority Access Urgent Care, 2912 Johnston Street, where patients are our priority. Call 337-446-0555 for more information or online at PriorityAccessUrgentCare.com. Schilling Distributing Company, Acadiana's top alcohol distributor for over 70 years, has been a proud supporter of Louisiana athletics for many of those years. Now, they've kindly decided to become the exclusive distributing sponsor of the Rage and Review podcast. This is just another chapter in Schilling Distributing's rich history of giving back to the Lafayette community. Starting as an Anheuser-Busch exclusive distributor, they're now expanded to include local brews for your sipping pleasure. Schilling services over 1,500 local businesses throughout the Acadiana area, employing 160 Ragin' Cajun residents, and they boast over 1,400 years of combined experience. Corporately headquartered right here in Lafayette at 2901 Moss Street, Schilling Distributing encourages Cajun Nation to enjoy their beverages responsibly and reminds you to download the Liquid Finder app today. in the lab raging review matt miguez jerry Abear, josh jagno man about town is here with us and we are joined with a very special guest former espn broadcaster and current fox sports and nbc chicago broadcaster adam amin adam thank you so much for joining us how are you today doing great boys how are you doing oh man awesome. living living Good. the dream Good. <laughs> that's i like to hear <laughs> so you know we, we kind of want to start talking about your career a little bit let let Cajun Nation have a little bit of a of an insight about you you uh you went to you went to Valpo and you broadcasted yes, with WVUR the student run college radio station there and you also called a little bit of minor league ball uh you know minor league ball is always always a blast how's uh how, how was that experience for you I loved it man I started doing it um in Gary Indiana so that was about a half hour drive from Valpo so I had a, the, a buddy of mine who was the sports information director at Valpo. Uh, he would hear me, you know, from the other room when I would do like soccer matches or volleyball or basketball or whatever. And he approached me one day and he's like, listen, I'm, you know, he, he was also the play-by-play guy for the 
minor league baseball team. He said, I need a partner for like the middle couple innings, middle three innings. Uh, and, and if you, if you want, I'd love to have you come on and I can't pay you, but you can, you can do the games. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm in. Absolutely. So I, I it was just an excuse to call games and kind of feel like you were doing it professionally while you're still in school. So to me, that was a huge deal. And between there and then getting a job in Somerset in uh, Somerset, New Jersey, central New Jersey, not far from where Rutgers is at, uh, doing that job for two years and riding buses up and down the East coast and kind of getting a, a feel for what it's like to, you know, ride the buses and, and be doing this every day. And, you know, getting into a town at three o'clock in the morning sometimes after, uh, after a homestand because you got to be, you know, in Southern Maryland for a Friday night game or something like that. You kind of get used to it and you kind of understand the, the intricacies and the nuances of it. And then on top of it, you're just doing games every day. So, you know, by, by sheer volume and principle, you'd think you'd get better at it. So that, like, for me, that was a integral. Like, a, like, like, like I, it was a required experience, I feel like, in a lot of ways for me to figure out how to do the job. So I, I loved my time doing minor league ball. I think it was probably some of the most formative experience in my career. And now it's translated into, you know, the last seven years of being able to do Major League Baseball, whether it's on the radio or, uh, or on TV for ESPN and Alpha Fox. Adam, anytime I see somebody who covered minor league ball, I think three things. Number one, mad respect, because I know you've been in the trenches. <laughs> Number two, what? first of all, the schedule on its own without being a student is taxing. So I'm curious, what was your schedule like as a student and calling the games uh, on a day-to-day basis? And then number two, I know you've got to have some amazing road stories. Uh, I've got I'll, – I'll give you a couple. I, so we – like schedule wise, when you're a student and you're kind of working your way, you know, work, working your way up doing this. So for me, it was nuts. Just like trying to balance. All right. Well, I'm going to work studio for our Saturday football game. And I'm going to host the, the, the pregame and postgame and halftime shows on, on radio at noon. And then I got to prep because we're doing the volleyball match at six o'clock that night on, on the student station. I'm doing play by play for that. And then, uh, you know, everybody's like, well, we got, we, you know, and you want to hang out, you know, you still want to enjoy your college experience. So it's Saturday night and you get done with your, with your game. And I was friends with a lot of the, with, with a lot of the athletes just by, you know, being around them. I lived with a few baseball players. Uh, so we were friends with all the athletes. So when they're done, you know, it's like, all right, well, there's a party at this person's house or this person's apartment. Let's go do that. Let's go enjoy that. And then, Oh, by the way, we got a one o'clock soccer match the next day that you're calling. And then, uh, oh yeah, I got to study for for this week's class, class schedule too. And on top of that, we're you know we're we're working at the radio station. We've got projects and all that stuff. So it was it was good to learn the time management of it all. And obviously, that carried over significantly for me in the years since by you know formulating a fairly, I would say, a fairly extensive schedule of what I've done professionally. So kind of having a sense of how to time budget and, and figure all that out was, was key, man. And I, I had, I had a lot of fun, man. Like on the road, once, once we got into the minor league baseball thing for a couple of years, like I had a lot of fun during those summers, man. Like whether it was, uh, so our, our, our manager was Sparky Lyle won the 1977 Cy Young award, 77 or 78. I can't remember. That. Uh, he won a Cy Young award with the New York Yankees big prankster in his major league days, like legendary guy, right? Yankee fans remember him. And he was an old school baseball guy, had this really gruff voice and this really big mustache, smoked, smoked Winston cigarettes. 
And I was like, oh, okay, so this guy is old school, like the oldest of old school. And kind of being around him and learning learning a lot of the nuances of the game from him and then being able to, like, you know, show up after our, you know, opening game of the series in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Sparky, uh, you know, after the game in the clubhouse, tell everybody, hey, you're, let's go to the bar, open bar tonight, drinks on me. So, like, those nights were probably some of the most fun I've ever had of just when, you know, like once a month we would do an open bar and Sparky would pay for your drinks. He'd, you know, if you had a girl with you, or if you had your wife or your girlfriend or like one of your buddies was in town or something, everybody was welcome. It was, he was very open like that. And it really kind of led to a lot of camaraderie and, and all that stuff. And then listen, I, I got into my fair share of trouble. <laughs> like, cause, uh, like I, I, one night we were at a bar in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I happened to meet a very, uh, you know, very charming woman. Uh, who was a bridesmaid at a wedding and that was going on at the hotel. And we just happened to start chatting at the bar and she was very nice. And, and I think one of like, I don't know if she had a boyfriend or if she was just talking to me because like she was trying to upset her date and make him jealous or something like that. But for whatever reason, this guy took offense to me just standing at the bar and talking to this, to this woman. And uh, he ended up like approaching me at the bar and going like, Hey, what, what's your issue? And I was like, I am, I'm the least confrontational person I think you guys have ever played. I am very non-confrontational. I don't like, I'm not, I have no malicious intent, I hope. Adam, do you know who I am? I mean, I mean, I should have, right? And then, and then he, he would have been so confused by that statement <laughs> that he would have just been like, oh, this guy must be just like, just a complete idiot. I'm going to leave him alone because he might be insane. That's, that's how I should have used it. I think, but like, you know, going back, like talking about the camaraderie of all of it, like this guy like was like approaching me and our hitting coach, like basically he walked up and our hitting coach, this guy, Travis Anderson, who was, who was just like, you know, just a super nice dude. And he, and he, this guy's got a wife and like two kids and he's very mild mannered, but like he saw this dude like rolling up on me at the bar and Travis like walked up behind me. He was like, is there a problem here? You got, you got any issues? And like, we had like a stare down or something like that with me and Travis and like, this guy and two of his buddies. <laughs> I did not want my night to go like this at all, but here we are. And Travis had my back and nothing, nothing ever came of it. It was just some dude drunk spouting off because he felt like spouting off or whatever. And the girl was like, sorry, I didn't, I, you know, I, I got you, you being an idiot right now. And I'm like, Hey, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, nothing, nothing ever came of it. But like, it just, it just, I enjoyed that camaraderie. I enjoyed somebody having my back in that moment. Those are like those little, those little moments that you don't really forget. They don't have like a huge necessarily impact on you, but it's just those like little stories that you always kind of keep in the back of your mind. And anytime I talk to Travis or Sparky or, or uh, Brett Jody, who's now the manager there and was a pitching coach at the time is a good buddy of mine, the uh, South Carolina guy. Like uh, I, we always remember stuff like that. It always uh, makes us laugh. So I, I had a great time during that. During that well, dude, you cliffhanger. What happened with the girl? I like not, nothing ever came of it, man. Nothing ever came of it. I think I think like the wedding party was leaving, and she just like left with the wedding party. And I was like, all right, that's fine. I I had no intention of like trying to hook up with a girl, or I was like using in the bar, and I was talking to her. That's all. So nothing. I had no intent. Again, no malicious intent. Well, I wasn't trying to hit on some somebody. Like it was just like I wasn't trying to steal anybody's girl. Just nothing, nothing ever came of it. I do. I would like to wonder though, like. What happened after that with that girl and that guy? The conversation like, he, on the ride just, home, right? Yeah. Did she just like scream at him? Did she just like 
Was he just like so drunk that he had no idea what was going on? Was she embarrassed? She felt, I think she was, was pretty embarrassed. So I think she kind of went away just knowing that like that dude, whether it was her boyfriend or not, or date or whatever, like kind of just made, made, you know, a, a butt out of himself and made her look kind of, kind of bad and embarrassed everybody. So I think, uh, I think I'd just leave it at that and just be like, all right, man, you guys, you guys do your thing. You clearly have some issues to work out amongst yourself. <laughs> no. So Adam, you know, growing up in, in Chicago, I, I hate to, to change the subject from that beautiful, beautiful <laughs> wedding story, but, uh, of course, very romantic. Yes. Grow, growing up in Chicago, we, uh, I, I have to wonder, especially for Josh's fate, being that he is a diehard Cubs fan. Are you a Cubs fan? Before it was cool. Absolutely. Yeah, before, yeah since, uh, since 86, uh, since my dad came over uh, to the States in the late 70s, he became a Cubs fan, and uh, he passed that on to me. So, yeah, I was, uh, I was stuck in, uh, in that uh, kind of loop for a long time. You know, I have to say, um, a little fun trivia for you, Adam. Um, you said Sparky Lyle was the manager of the team that you covered. Uh, for Cajun fans everywhere uh, listening in, um, fun, little, fun little trivia for you. You said he was a 1977 Cy Young Award winner with the New York Yankees. Uh, for those who don't know, the following year in 1978, the Cy Young Award winner for the American League, also for the New York Yankees, none other than Louisiana-born and bred, Ryan Guidry. Absolutely, and uh, there's a great connection between those guys. And I mean, Sparky was a little bit of a controversial figure because he ended up, with the help of a writer, writing a book called The Bronx Zoo, mm-hmm. and it detailed a lot of the, uh, lot of the uh, entertaining for us and I'm sure volatile for them issues that that particular group of guys had with one another, with Billy Martin and all those guys in the, in the, in the late 70s, on those famous Yankee teams, and it's just... Uh, it's an interesting read, if nothing else. If you guys want some better school entertainment, feel free to, to check that out. You mean like the 16 times uh, Billy Martin was fired by jo- uh, George Steinbrenner in the locker room? Yeah. They didn't fight and then he gets you. And like, and the, it was actually depicted on one of those ESPN shows. Um, and and he, he straight up, he fires them. Billy Martin goes, get out of my face. And then before you know it, Yogi Berra is sitting in the uh, Liz locker. And he just, Steinbrenner just goes, okay, Yogi, you're now the manager. He's <laughs> like, and, and like Yogi's just sitting there like, are you serious? Really? Yogi speaking like Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> If you guys, if you guys find, and you're talking about the Bronx is burning, which was That's the show it. that ESPN made based on that book, so it's, it's tremendously entertaining. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And and you know, Adam, Adam, I mean, our guest, you know, in 2011, you were hired by ESPN to do college football and college basketball, among multiple, you know, other sports. But you know, I kind of want to focus on the on the college football aspect. Obviously, you know, you've been down to Lafayette to call games a, a few times. Uh, what was your experience like in Lafayette, and uh, what, what do we have to do to get you back, man? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, my my lone trip to Lafayette was for was for actually for the softball regionals in 2014. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, 2016. 2016 was my lone trip to Lafayette. I've called a bunch of Louisiana football games, though. Like I've called I've called bowl games there. In fact, the first bowl game I ever called was Raging Cajuns against uh, San Diego State 2011 New Orleans Bowl. Oh my god, the and greatest game in Cajuns game history. One of one of the one of the most fun games. I mean, I had an absolute blast and and I still remember uh, 
Randy Crystal was the was the official. Brett Bear was the kicker. Oh, we know Brett. Who was setting okay. up. Yep, Brett Bear was setting up for what I think was like a 55-yard yep. yep. game-winning field goal. Yep. And then Randy Crystal had San Diego State. This was the first time I'd ever heard this call, but then eventually, you know, you understand what it is. For illegal stemming, stemming yes. which is basically calling out, calling out the cadence for, of, the, of the staff for the other team, and you can't do that. So they tagged him, tagged San Diego State five yards and moved it down to a 50-yard field goal, still a career long, and Brett nails it at the gun for, for Louisiana to win. And I remember, I, I remember just – it was it was awesome. It was so much fun. So wait, 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 let, wait. Me, let, let me ask Adam real quick. If you have a call like that, and obviously it's early in the career, do you tend to follow the team after that? Do you kind of become a, a, a closet fan a little bit? A little bit. Like, well, what you'll do is, like, I'll always kind of check back in or at least – you know, what ends up happening is you remember some of the names – that you know, you you kind of pass pass through when you're prepping, and you. I remember Brett there all this time later. I mean, I, like I probably wouldn't remember the quarterback off the top of my head, but if I went back and looked at the 2011 season, I I remember you know a bunch of names, and I remember Mark, and I remember the rope, and and, and all the kind of tradition. Hold the rope. I remember all these traditions from from, from Mark, and, and kind of dealing with him and talking to him about it. He was always great to us, so. I mean, I mean, you become a fan of people. I think in college athletics, in particular, uh, I think in, I think in general as a broadcaster, you want to root for people, especially when you get a chance to meet them. You're set up with these interviews. You're set up with time to talk. You want to when, when you walk away from somebody and you feel, and you may be wrong because you're only getting a small glimpse of them when you talk to them. But even in those small glimpses, when you feel like you walk away from an interview and you like that person, you think, man, that that person seems like a good good human being. You want the best for them. You want things to go well for them. So, and, you know, to, to see it, to see that play out, you know, you kind of, you know, man, Mark was always good to us. It was, it was obviously sad when, when he got let go, but I, you know, I understood it, the business of the game, but like, you kind of, you kind of remember those names and you kind of remember the moments. And, and I, I still feel like that's always been something that, that stuck out to me in my dealings with, whether it was Tony Robichaux, whether it was the softball team, whether it was football, like all that always kind of. So, Adam, let me get this straight. You did the play-by-play on the ESPN broadcast for that game, right? Uh, yeah, I did a radio call for that one. That you was the, the first radio, radio call. call I did. Yep. Okay. And, and, and I, think, I, think Carter, I think Carter Blackburn and Brock Stewart, if I'm not mistaken, had the TV that's call right, for that. That's right. Because, I, you know, what's funny is that <laughs> – so, so this was the beauty of that day. It was our first bowl game uh, in over 40 years. That day I actually graduated from Louisiana. Um, we had oh, no kidding. That's yeah. awesome. So it was like the perfect graduation gift for me because I remember <laughs> we're standing in line at the Cajun Dome ready to get our degrees, and all we could talk about in line was, okay, who are you riding with? What hotel you staying at? What time we're meeting up in New Orleans? Where are you sitting? You know, and and it was just such a memorable game for Cajun Nation. And uh, we're so happy to, to have you on because just the fact that you were able to experience that with us, uh, it was a very magical moment in Cajun in Cajun uh, Cajun football history. I skipped I skipped my no, junior prom yeah. for that game. Hey, you made <laughs> the right awesome. choice. You made the right choice. Very wise choice. If you're, if you're gonna if you're gonna skip. If you're gonna skip, it better be good, and it turned out to be great. It turned out to be a just one of the, one of my favorite. It, it, it almost like, did. legitimately one of my favorite memories. One of my favorite memories. Yeah, thanks to Brett Bear, it turned out to be great. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I <laughs> Go ahead, Adam. Oh me, my bad. <laughs> uh, I was just gonna ask you about the early days at ESPN when they brought you on. Was it 
was it? Did you know you were going to start doing just radio, or were you? Did you? Did you know you were going to go onto the plus, or how all did it play out? Did they kind of give you an itinerary, or did you get hired and then they said, "Hey, you fit here"? Uh, when I got hired, so and it, it was, it, it, it's so strange to think about. It, it was nine years ago, uh, and. I just, it's, it's funny to me now because it's so different, you know, already it's so much different than it was, you know, than it is even now. Like it just, even in a nine year span, it's changed a lot. But when I got hired, I got hired as like a utility guy essentially. And, uh, they, you know, I, my resume was basically, I had a lot of basketball experience. I had a lot of baseball and softball experience. I've called a lot of, um, volleyball. So like those were kind of like these niche sports, at least on the collegiate end of things, uh, along with college hoops that like, you know, they needed people, they needed younger people to kind of fill in these roles that, you know, as you get kind of, kind of advanced and you, you want to focus on stuff. Like for me, it was, I want, I, I always wanted to do pro sports and obviously, you know, nine, 10 years in my, into my career, I'm kind of focused on pro sports at this time. But you know, when you're young and you, you're hungry and you want to just have the job and you don't want to screw it up, you want to make a good impression, you're you're going to do whatever they tell you. And I was hired essentially as a utility guy. I had no plans on doing football. And I had barely called any football in my life. I'd called maybe four games on the radio in my entire life before I got hired at ESPN. So they hired me as a utility guy. And then Todd Harris, who had been calling like SWAC and MEAC football the last you know year or two. He was leaving for NBC, and all of a sudden they needed somebody to fill in on football and, and to take the, this – you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a high-profile package. It was on ESPNU at 10.30 Eastern time on Saturdays. The games were tape-delayed from earlier in the afternoon. And for me, it was just a matter of, well, whatever you got, man, I don't care. I don't care what it is. I don't care what school it is. I don't care what city you got to send me to. So I made trips down to the Delta, the Mississippi Delta, you know, and I, I my first uh, college game uh, for ESPN was, uh, was in Shreveport, Louisiana. I was doing Grambling and Alcorn State. You know, that was the first time I called a college football game in my life. So for me, I was just happy to have the job. And, you know, eventually when you get to bowl season, like, all right, we're going to put you on some radio where we'll try to get you, you know, I didn't get any bowl games on TV as a rookie. Like, that's fine. I didn't expect to. But they talked me some games on radio. And I, they, they kind of realized, oh, he, he can do radio too. Why don't you do more of this? Why don't, well, let's give you a college basketball game to do on radio. And then all these things just start to snowball a little bit. Now you're going to do base, college baseball. All right, go, go do this. Oh, he's good at college baseball. Can he do softball? Yeah, he's doing college softball now too. He did volleyball. I did the NCAA wrestling championships. Like Whatever they asked me to do, I was happy to do because I was just happy to have the job. And I knew how to do all these sports because I had called them in college or on my way up toward the SPN in those couple of years out of school. And I just wanted to keep working. So my initial contract was for 45 events. And my first year I ended up calling 95 events because they just kept adding more and more and more. And I just kept saying yes, because I, I didn't know any better and I wanted to keep doing it. And, also, essentially, it doubled my salary without ever having signed a contract for it. So that was pretty great, too, admittedly. And it was just, I, I didn't want to say no, man. And that's, that's how my mentality was shaped, and that's how I wanted to approach the job. So, Adam Amin, you were basically the 2011-2012 ESPN Rookie of the Year. 
if, 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 if there was an award for it, I would have happily accepted it. I don't know if I would have won it, but I would have, I would have been honored to be a nominee. And I, and I was really, I was proud. I was proud that they trusted me enough to keep throwing more stuff at me. And I kept saying yes, and I didn't want to screw it up. And thankfully, I didn't, uh, I didn't bomb too badly on any of these broadcasts because. And they they brought me back for another year. My first year, you know, when they sign you on a contract, it's like we have a, it's a one year deal with a one year option, and it's a network option, so the company can decide if they want to keep you or not. So that first year, I was I was a free agent. I was in that I was in that contract year, so to speak, and it was the same deal the following year when they picked up my option. It was only for one year, and I had to work hard again to make sure that I was doing quality work so that I could stay on. And there, there's no question that you absolutely were. I mean, you were you were at ESPN until until May of this year. Uh, you know, you're like like you mentioned, your resume with ESPN is quite extensive. But a few things that I want to touch on is the 2018 Women's Final Four, as well as the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. <laughs> Let's Absolutely. Uh, let's talk. What kind of experience was was that? Like, how, how do you broadcast a hot dog eating contest? What bet did you lose no. to pick up that assignment? I mean, come on. <laughs> honestly, man, it was it was it was really really not that much different. Believe it or not, I think a lot of people are kind of surprised when I say that. Like, calling a hot dog contest, at least in philosophy and principle, is not that much different than calling any other event because you you approach it the same way. Like when I do it in a event and this is an event, right? So it's a big kind it's a, it, you're not covering a team. You're not necessarily covering, covering just an individual. You're covering this event and you need to know the history of the event, the context of the event, you know, the rules of this particular event. And then you get to meet the participants and, and you know, the, the competitors in this and you learn their stories and you learn their background and you learn their stats. And there are stats when, when it comes to this stuff, like personal records, and what's the, what's the event record, what's the world record. And obviously we were uh, covering Joey Chestnut. So there are plenty of numbers that we can actually quantify about, you know, what, what he's doing, how special it is that, that he's doing this to hit 70 hot dogs or whatever it is. So we, we approached it the same way. And then, when the event starts, you just kind of call it. You navigate people through the 10 minutes that the competition is going on. And we kind of structure it in our heads like like you would a golf tournament, right? When, when you watch a golf tournament on, on uh, Thursday, on the opening day, you're really keeping things wide. You're keeping the scope very wide. You're talking about the event. You're talking about, you know, okay, obviously this guy's the defending champion, so he's at the forefront of it, but who else is a, uh, is a threat? Who else is performing well out of the gate? And then as you get into the second portion of it, like the, let's say the next two and a half minutes of it, that's like the Friday, right? Now you're starting to see who's in front, who's starting to separate Saturday and Sunday are about closing. And those, that's the last five minutes. We get to those last couple minutes. We know Joey's ahead of the field by a large margin, but we're going to focus on him because he's trying to get the world record to keep you up to date on who's following and who's close by and who might get third or who might get second and who's maybe closing in on their best round. But we're focused on Joey Chestnut because he's the story now. Just like Phil or Tiger or Dustin Johnson or whoever, you know, would be on the back nine on Sunday afternoon at whatever golf course they're playing on for that championship. So you kind of approach it in a really, really similar way, I believe it now. Well, there's only one follow-up to that. Is it as disgusting in person as it is on television or... 
<laughs> so for me, it's less disgusting in person because the, the two years that I called it, obviously we're in very strange times right now, but we were at Coney Island. Our stage is probably 25, maybe 30 feet away from the main stage where the competitors are. Yikes. And I'm just, I, I'm basically just working off the monitor and kind of calling it off the monitor and maybe looking up and seeing anything I can observe. Whereas this year, my buddy, Mike Bullock Jr. was, uh, was, was the new play by play man for the hot dog eating contest. And they're in, uh, you know, in a, in, in a, I think at, at Coney Island in a building, they're indoors, everything is separated with, you know, dividers and all that, you know, they made it work in a, in a COVID world right now. And it was grosser watching it on TV because there was no crowd to distract you. There was nothing else going on that could uh, stimulate your senses other than watching these guys directly and almost looking into their eyes as they're gorging themselves on these, on these hot dogs and buns. So, for me, like the two years I did it, it was fine. I had no issue. And I love Nathan's hot dogs, by the way. They're really good. They really good, good. snaps to them. The buns are great. They're very good. Uh, I felt for my colleagues who had to do it this year in that setting just strictly because of the kind of gross factor that, that was added into it. So I have a ton of questions, but have you done golf? I have not, actually. That's one of the few sports I haven't done. I've never done golf. I've never done hockey. And... Oh my God! You've I'm never hockey, done hockey. Oh man! I've never called hockey. Hockey is like like I, I you know I'm kind of you know I'm a casual fan. Certainly, I was a much bigger fan with you know the '90s and, and and you know when the Blackhawks were were, were kind of are, are, you know really shoot like a big a big a big deal in my youth. And I was a big NHL video game guy, so naturally you become a fan of the sport. And then as I started to shift my focus in broadcasting, I really kind of just locked into baseball, softball basketball, football, you know, I was, I was kind of locking in on, on my portfolio and I don't have as much time to enjoy hockey the way I used to, but as a casual fan, I'm somewhat in mourning as the Blackhawks finally got eliminated last night. But I, the, the, the first guy I ever listened to really was Pat Foley. He's a, still the play-by-play man for the, for the Blackhawks and, and just, you know, his kind of distinct Chicago accent. He sounded like one of our guys, you know, he's, he, he, he'd say, Ah, uh, there's number thirty-three. You know, like he, he says it with like that weird Chicago accent, and I, I always just appreciated like his taste. And I think hockey is the hardest thing to call. Now, again, I've never called it before, but I think it's the hardest thing to call. Like, I, I think the pacing, the speed, the fluidity of it—I mean, it's really hard. And I have a lot of respect for guys that just step in and do it and make it sound seamless. Doc Emmerich is amazing at, oh, at what God, he does. I love, and all I those, Doc. I mean, it's just, it's just the, the poet laureate of our generation in terms of, of national broadcasters. It's, it's incredible. Uh, so I, I have a lot of respect for hockey and this, man. It ain't easy. Yeah, you know, uh, you, you mentioned being in mourning because you're a Blackhawks fan. I'm a, I'm a diehard Washington Capitals fan. We're hanging on. Sure. Uh, you know, we, hanging we, in there. We, we started off 3-0, but we got the big W last night hanging in. Um you know, Adam, one, one thing that we mentioned earlier, like we said, we talked about the 2018 Women's Final Four, and everybody remembers when Notre Dame knocked off UConn, kind of like a, a David beating Goliath type of thing. Um, you know, you called that game, obviously, and we have a we have a clip that we'll play in a second, but I want to ask you right off the bat, how was that game from a, from a play-by-play standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I mean, both of them, right? The semis and the finals. You know, the semis against UConn and the finals against uh, Mississippi State. Just I, uh, it's, li- it's lightning in a bottle. You know, like, it's kind of nuts to me that we had 
we had two games like that back to back. It's just nuts, you know. Like I'm, it's shocking that we got to witness that and to kind of be in the chair for that, you know, for those moments. That's that's a, that's something that every broadcaster dreams of. Every broadcaster hopes that they have a stage like that first and foremost. And I was very fortunate to be able to call the Final Four for a couple of years. Obviously, I would have you know had to, had a chance to do it this past year. Uh, and not been the shutdown. And it'll be, every broadcaster hopes to have a grand type of event, grand stage like that. So already, I'm I'm on you know, I'm on cloud nine at that point. But to have the moment like that be a part of it on, on Friday night during the semis to have that. I mean, I remember leaving that, uh, the arena in Columbus that night thinking, well, I bet you Sunday is going to be terrible because there ain't no way we're getting anything like that on Sunday. You know, like that's, that's how it had been the year prior. You know, Mississippi state had upset UConn in the semis on uh, that Morgan Williams shot at the buzzer. And that ended that 111 game. UConn winning streak and, 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 you know, they had won, I think four titles in a row at that point. And it was one of the greatest shockers ever, you know, one of the, truly one of the biggest shockers in sports history, college sports history. And the, the title game was a little bit of a letdown after that. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just impossible to live up to something like that. So I thought when we left that night and we're, we're driving back to the hotel, I'm like, well, that was fun. I'm glad we got, got that. And I'm glad I had a moment like that. And that's, that's awesome, and I'm thankful that we got a. We, you know, our crew covered it really well, and I'm, I'm very thankful for all of that. And uh, we'll be ready for the blowout on Sunday. So when we, uh, you know, and, and plus Notre Dame was trailing by double digits in the second half on Sunday against Mississippi State. I'm like, all right, let's get ready, man. The, the Bulldogs might finally pull this off, win their first ever national title in any sport. And then here comes the Notre Dame comeback, and now we have a tie game with three seconds, and we get the national championship call. Like I, I and that's that's two lightning flashes in a bottle that I can't really comprehend. The odds of that happening are minuscule to begin with. And for me to have the opportunity to be in that chair feels like an even greater long shot. So I, I, I'll always look back and I don't think it, I don't, I don't know if I would have called that, you know, I don't think those moments are career makers, but I think it can mess it up. It can be career breakers. And I'm, thankful that I, I walked away from that weekend thinking myself and our crew uh, did the moments justice, and I was really proud of how that weekend played out. You definitely did it justice. I thought it was a great moment for the, the women's game. I mean, we've had several seminal mm-hmm. moments recently, so it's great for the women's game, but you, you kind of answered the question I was going to ask is, do all broadcasters or play-by-play guys, do you wait for a moment like that? Are you prepared for it? Do you Do you think about what you might say in the moment. Uh, and, and really the question comes into more focus because, like you said, the night before you had an incredible moment in the game and then you followed it up with a bigger one. Were you prepared to say anything at all? Did you did you script it? Did you think about it? I, I think the process, I've never scripted anything uh, in terms of a call. Uh, I've never, I, I don't script much in general. Uh, that's just my, my personal preference. I, I've always felt that being organic to the moment is more important. I've always felt like leaning on instinct is far more important. But you can't do those things unless, like you said, and I think this is kind of what you're referring to, like in terms of the beat, like being prepared for something like that, 
the only way to be prepared for something like that is to have gone through moments like that. Maybe not necessarily to that extent. It's certainly not at that, that, you know, level of event. I had never done that, but I called a buzzer beater and you know, a couple buzzer beaters in basketball on, you know, low level games. Uh, I called some walk-offs in minor league baseball. I called a walk-off in softball and baseball. You call a game and touchdown. You know, I had some big college football games earlier that year. Uh, you know, the 2017 season was when, you know, uh, myself and Dusty Dvorak and Molly McGrath, we were the Friday night college football crew. And, you know, we had some crazy moments and we had some huge games that year. The year prior, I worked with Mac Brown on Friday night college football and we had, you know, I had a game where Mac had to leave, you know, with like 11 minutes to go in a wild game out in Provo, Utah, and I called the last 11 minutes by myself. Like, I don't think there are a lot of guys that have had, had moments like that. So for me, all of those things, all of those games and all those moments, even going back to my college days at Alpo and minor league baseball in New Jersey up the eastern seaboard and doing swag and MEAC football and doing wrestling championships where I was calling the national title, uh, you know, all of these things, calling the Women's College World Series and getting exposure to big moments where maybe not as many people are paying attention. That's what prepared me on that Friday night to be able to call the moment, not overstep the moment to be calm and collected in my mind so that I could be energetic and enthusiastic physically on the call. And, and I think it's, you know, a lot of people are like, man, you, 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 you know, you're, you're ready to go for that. And I was like, yeah, but it was, it was a 12 year buildup to being ready to do something like that and to be ready for that moment. And once Friday happened and we got back to Sunday, you see, to your point, it, it didn't feel like a big deal anymore. It's like, you've been here before, you know how to handle this, be ready. You know what the stakes are. Keep your mind sharp, keep yourself engaged and you'll know what to say. Lean on the instincts of calling hundreds of basketball games over the years to get ready for something like this. Be ready for it. You're, you know how to call it. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And then in terms of like scripting, like a final moment or final call, like, no, there's no way to predict that. You can't you know, like, if it was a blowout game, what, what I did in preparation leading up to the final four, I did write down like themes, you know, for the team. Uh, for both teams. Like, all right, Mississippi State, seeking that first national title. They were denied a year prior. They had their biggest moment in program history only to have it fall short. It'd be like, you know, it, like if, uh, you know, the 1980 hockey, Olympic hockey team had beat the Russians and then lost to Finland in the, in the gold medal match. You know, like, you, you don't want to have a letdown like that. Uh, whereas Notre Dame, they had all these injuries. They overcame so much. They, they have this incredible Friday night moment. And now... Uh, 17 years to the day of their first national championship, they have an opportunity to maybe win win another one. And it would be Muffet McGraw's greatest coaching job considering all the injuries. So that that's how we kind of approached it. And that's how maybe I would have thought about things if one team or the other was in front by a large margin with a couple minutes to go. And you know the title is on its way. Then you can start to contextualize it. When you have a game that goes down to the wire and you have no idea what's going to happen, there's no script in that. You just have to lean on your instincts and train it, essentially, over the course of a long period of time. Well, Adam, luckily for you, we can take a stroll <laughs> down memory lane. So first, I've got the semifinal call against um, with Notre Dame and UConn. 
for a trip to the national championship. Ogumawale. Good! One second remaining. No timeouts for UConn. Williams down the floor. Samuelson. Notre Dame with the win. Off to the title game. How, how, what was that like for you? Play by play for the play by play. Right. Yeah. Let's walk through that one. How, how, how was that call for you? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that that it played out like that and I didn't say something more and I didn't put myself in a position to mess anything up. Or swear. Uh, too badly, honestly. Or swear for that matter. Cause I mean, I, I think you guys, if you guys are watching the video of it, you, you understand I'm a fairly excitable person. Like, I, I jumped out of my chair. Uh, the same way I did on Sunday night, you know, like I, I wanted to stay in check as much as possible and still let myself enjoy the magnitude of the moment. And that's not always an easy thing. You know, you're, you're, you're constantly trying to balance that and that's fine. That's the job. That's your job as a play-by-play guy to, to understand the balance of it. But I, I, I knew the setup, man. And like I said, for with 10 seconds left, it's, for a trip to the national championship, I don't have to say anything else and just let let Ogumbawale take the shot and hit the call. And because we had done, I think, had done our due diligence for the previous, you know, at that point, forty four minutes. That was in overtime. The previous forty four plus minutes of game time, I thought we had done, a, you know, our a serviceable job of getting you to that point as a fan and being and, and being prepared for something like that to happen that we didn't have to over talk. And, and the biggest thing I always appreciated, uh, was, was Kara and Rebecca, Kara Lawson, and Rebecca Lobo, my partners who are, you know, more like sisters to me. Uh, they let me have that moment. You know, that's the other thing. Like I tried my best to give them as much space as I could because they are really smart and they're really good at their jobs and they make people smarter by talking about basketball. And I wanted that to be the case. And I have enough respect for them to do that. And I think because they're such professionals and they're so good at what they do, they also knew that in the biggest moment, they weren't going to step on me. The floor was mine. I didn't have to tell them. I didn't have to ask them. They just knew. And it was a rhythm that we had developed. And they, they, they stayed with me the whole time, you know, and, and, and kind of supported me in that, in that, in that moment. And I always, uh, I don't think I'll ever uh, not appreciate them for that. Yeah, you know, Adam, we were talking about the you were talking about play by play guys. You know, we we interviewed our our former radio broadcaster Jay Walker a yep. couple a couple weeks ago, and you know, he's, Adam knows Jay. He's a he's a he's a big Dodgers fan, and you know, the one thing that that he he always tells us is, you know, Vin Vin Scully's obviously one of the greatest to ever do it, and of course. the the thing that Vin always had was he knew when to shut up. He, he knew when to let that the was, moment speak for itself. Yeah, and that's the lesson that I feel like you always have to remember, especially on television, is they that is that it's it's all part of the it's all part of the story. The, the the visuals that you get, along with the crowd, along with what the announcers are saying, or more importantly, as you said, not saying, that's all part of the tapestry of of the the final you know, picture that you're giving to somebody about this moment. And you don't want 
you, you, your words more than likely are not going to be enough to encompass every moment that you're seeing play out on TV. So why would you try? Why would you try to defeat the visual of the celebration of the disappointment on the other side of the fans going nuts uh, of the coaches in shock? Why would you step over that? There's no reason to do that. You know, I, I think back to 88 and the world series in game one, Dodgers A's and Kirk Gibson, it's the walk off home run in game one. And they have been Scully. And I think it was Joe Garagiola did a wonderful, masterful, forget wonderful, masterful job of setting up the Kirk Gibson at bat and get it, making you understand why it was so risky to put him out there. He had the leg injury. He could barely, he could barely run up the first base line. Uh, you know, the, you know, and look at, how about this roll of the dice? And, and he's coming, look who's coming up. And, and he, they just set this up beautifully. They analyze it, but they don't talk too much during the at-bat. They're giving you the information that you need to understand the context. And then the, the, the call is just beautiful. High fly ball to right field, she is gone. And it's just silence after that. And the crowd is going nuts. And Gibson's pumping his fist around first base. And the moment is, you know, Tracy Woodson, who was, a, who was a former Valpo baseball coach, friend of mine, he was on that team, and he's the first guy out of the dugout waving his arms, and he meets Gibson at home plate, and, and it's just this amazing moment. And then for like a minute and a half or something like that, didn't say anything. And had he said anything, not that it would have been bad. It's Vince Scully. He's a wonderful, smart, intelligent broadcaster with a wonderful voice. I'm sure it would have been great. But the fact that he knew to let that moment play out the way he let it play out and then waited for the right moment to drop the hammer of a line, which is still one of the greatest lines of contextualization for a sporting event I've ever heard. In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. That is a line that you cannot recreate. That is just perfection. That is as good of a line as I've ever heard on any broadcast in the history of the media. You know, and that's what Vin, that's what Vin did. I, you know, I, Adam, I, I actually had an experience very similar to that. I, I had the, um, the privilege. And, and look, I just want to let you know, I, I was born and raised in New Orleans. And so uh, I was a junior in high school when Hurricane Katrina hit. And um, in 2006, you know, my, my, my parents had season tickets. We've had Saints season tickets for years. And so right. uh, for that 2006 game, the Monday night game against Atlanta, uh, oh. the first time back in the Superdome, I had the privilege of being there. And, uh, you know, we were – it felt like a, a playoff atmosphere. But whenever Steve Gleason blocked the punt, um, yep. you know, I've never heard the Dome roar like that. And I've been to many games in the Superdome, but when Gleason blocked that punt, it was so emotional. I was high-fiving, hugging people around me just because it was such a, a huge moment. And I just remember, and I still watch the replay sometimes on YouTube, of Mike Tirico's call. And yeah. he says, a punt blocked by Steve Gleason. It is scooped and scored by Curtis Deloach. Touchdown, New Orleans. And he emphasized touchdown, New Orleans as like yes. the city scored that touchdown. And yes. he specifically said, I, he, he kept it silent for like a minute and a half, like you said with Vin Scully, just to hear the emotion of the crowd. And 
you know, I, I watch it sometimes and I still get choked up, you know, because I remember the emotions of being inside the Superdome for that game. And we never left our seats. I mean, it was such a great atmosphere, but it just goes to show you the impact of a call or a moment in sports. You know, it transcends the game itself. There's so much more meaning behind sports. And that's what makes, as a whole, that's what makes sports so special to all of us. And, um, you know, being in that Superdome when that happened, I, I related to that when you talked about uh, Kirk Gibson's home run. That's one thing that Mike Tirico did. He basically stayed silent for a good minute, minute and a half before talking again because they just wanted to hear that crowd react. So it kind of brought back a memory when you would, when you would mention that. Yeah, I think to, to that point, the, it, it, I think I think announcing I think like being a being a play-by-play announcer in particular I think I think it's a fairly easy job to do adequately I, I'm, I'm stealing a line from Bob Costas I think it's a fairly easy job to do adequately there are plenty of adequate broadcasters out there uh, and, and I'm using that term very relatively I'm not, I don't need to diminish the value and skill and effort of a lot of announcers but I think there are plenty of us who can do this job adequately it takes something special. It takes someone special. And I think Mike is one of those guys. I think Vin is clear cut. One of those guys, there's only so many of them. There's a handful of them. And there's a reason that they have the jobs that they do. Joe Bucks, the Jim Nance, the Al Michaels, uh, you know, the, the Tarikos, the Doc Emmerichs, the Vin Scully's, uh, you know, the Dick Enbergs of the world. There's only so many people like that, that just have this knack, this ability to elevate the enjoyment for a fan or a viewer who's watching and listening to that game. There are plenty of announcers who do a serviceable job. I'm, I'm happy to be a serviceable announcer, and I think a lot of us probably feel like we're serviceable, but it takes someone special and something special to be able to have such a pulse of the job and have of the moment that they can elevate the enjoyment of those who are watching. And, and that's what Ben did. That's what Mike does. Uh, you know, that's, that's what a lot of us you know, strive towards. And, you know, Adam, that, that's what you do as well. You know, we, we talked about the, the call from the, from the semifinal. I also have the call from the, uh, from the national championship. And uh, I'm going I'm to play that right now. And we'll grade you, adequate or not. Ogumbawale for the win. Ten out of ten for nice yeah. What a what a what a <laughs> awesome call right there. Um, yeah, I mean, I just I, I couldn't imagine being being in that seat as somebody who wants to do play by play as a career. I couldn't imagine being in that seat. It was so good, Adam. No, I, I think yeah, seriously, that, that means a lot for you guys to say that. But I, I again, I never imagined I'd even have a chance like that. I, I never thought I'd have a chance to be in a chair like that, let alone have a moment like that, let alone be lucky enough to feel like I walked out and, and had, a, had, a, had a decent call on something like that. So it's, it's very, very meaningful that it has, it, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not trying to play like the overly humble card or something like that. So let me, let me stop doing that. I, the, the Notre Dame call, I really felt like it mattered two years ago when Michigan came to Notre Dame to play opening week uh, of the college football season in 2018. And I was in Tucson, I think. We were doing Arizona that night. 
So um, I flip on the game and I'm watching it in our, in our hotel before we leave for our game. And my buddy, who's a diehard Notre Dame fan, is one of my closest friends. He's gone to the game with his family. And at one time out in the maybe first quarter or something like that, they were honoring the Notre Dame women's championship team. And they played the call on the Jumbotron at Notre Dame Stadium. And my buddy recorded it and sent me the video and the crowd reaction. And I know it wasn't for the call. I know it's for the team. It's for, it's for the team itself. But they used our video, like our camera, uh, for, for part of it too. Like that shot that you have of me and Kara and Rebecca at the table. And the reaction to that was really cool. It's, you know, it's however many thousands, you know, thousands of people at Notre Dame stadium all cheering after this, after this uh, moment. And I just thought, wow, okay, so this thing's going to have some lasting power. <laughs> like it'll, it'll, it'll at least, it'll at least be remembered, you know, for, for by somebody. And that just having that is almost, is, pretty, is almost enough, you know, to know that, all right, we, we did, we did the moment justice. It's going to live on with some people you know, even if it's only a small group of people with a very specific, uh, you know, fandom, it's going to live on in that small group for a long time. And that's meaningful. So speaking of Michigan and Notre Dame, and I consider Notre Dame technically big 10 this year because they were going to play a big 10 schedule. Let's kind of, before we let you go, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the unknowns over the next few weeks on what's going to happen. What does tomorrow bring for college football? Now you're in an area that's right in the heart of big 10 country. And um, obviously for you, you have to, (laughs) you're probably surrounded by the news. You're surrounded by the ups and downs and the rumors and the speculations and if, if, if you will, the soap opera going on with the Big Ten Conference right now. What what have you heard? What is the overall perception with the people, not just the officials, but like the local people? I mean, what are they saying about whether or not they should play? Because in the South, everybody, pretty much most people here want to play football. What What is the perception uh, where you are up in Illinois in that area as um, when it comes to college football and whether or not they should play? What, what are you what are the what's the vibes you're getting right now? Yeah, I, I think uh, the desire to play is high. I mean, but that's that's across the board everywhere. So I, I never want to make a try to make a distinction between you know ACC and SEC and Big Twelve people against Big Ten and Pac twelve people. Like the Big Ten and Pac twelve fans, the schools for the most part, it seems like want to play. The desire to play has never been waning. That's never waned for anybody. That doesn't mean that the ability to play in the estimation of the conferences is there. And again, and that mileage varies right now. Right. Uh, you know, in my, in my estimation, it's hard to say like whether they should play or not, because I'm not an epidemiologist and I don't, and I'm not an athletic administrator. And these are two very key positions right now that have to be on the same page or else we can't play. Because somebody's gonna, if somebody dissents, there's gonna be an issue, and I, I don't think the desire to play has ever waned, but the the feel, the feeling like you can do it safely, varies a lot, and that's why we have the distinction we do between the SEC, the Big Twelve, and uh, the ACC compared to the Big Ten and the Pac-12 right now. Uh, I think the biggest frustration has been the lack of transparency. More than anything else, uh, the Big Ten has not done a good job, at least in my estimation. And, and again, I'm on the outside looking in. I don't think they have done a particularly good job of communicating 
their information, their context, uh, their reasoning to certainly to parents. Cause you see, you know, what, what Iowa parents, Ohio state parents, uh, you know, they, they all want to, you know, uh, come down to the big 10 office and let them know how they feel about it. Uh, I, I, I think they're frustrated because they haven't felt like they've been communicated to properly. Um, you know, when it comes to the SEC and the ACC, I'm looking at, you know, I, I listen to Nick Saban say, you know, the, the players are probably safer on campus than they are off. And I actually think that's probably right if the athletes are the only ones that are on campus. And if you're doing that, now you're opening up a whole nother layer. And, I, and look no further than North Carolina, what's happening there right now, where all non-student athletes are basically being sent home away from campus and the athletes are allowed to stay. Now, again, if you want to make that distinction, just acknowledge it. If you're the NCAA, just acknowledge that these are not the same. These are, you, you're, we treat student athletes as money-making machines. And if you just came out and said it and gave them some kind of equi- equity balance of this, whether it's revenue, whether it, you know, whatever it may be, then a lot of these problems would probably go away. Cause if you ask any 18 to 24 year old kid who has a chance to play college football and they feel like they can do it safely, they're going to want to play. Like well, anybody who can do something safely is going to want to do it. So if they feel like they're going to be on a campus and the protocols are going to be followed, and if they do test positive, then they're going to be isolated. They're going to be taken care of by good medical you know, professionals. And then when they're, you know, test negative again and they're healthy or whatever, and they can rejoin the team, of course they're going to want to do that. And why wouldn't you? I understand that. If I had my brothers, we wouldn't be dealing with any of this anyway, but that's not, we're not in that world. So we have to make the best of it in a lot of people's estimations. And this, this is a good way to do it. But you're also acknowledging that the institution of college amateurism is more of a, of a facade than it ever has been. And that's where a lot of these administrators, that's where the NCAA is very hesitant because if you have a painting, have you ever seen it? You guys watch The Office? Sure, absolutely. absolutely. Episode where Jim buys Pam a house, right? He buys his parents' old house. And there's that creepy picture of the clown that's on the wall (laughs) in the house. And Jim makes the joke as Pam tries to like pull it away. He goes, "Uh, actually, that's a load-bearing painting. That is basically what amateurism, quote-unquote, is. It is a load-bearing column in this crumbling house right now that the NCAA has built and has made a ton of money off of for a long time. And now suddenly people are coming around to the realization that if you take away this facade of amateurism, the whole house of cards is going to come crumbling down. And unless you acknowledge that what you've been doing is BS and nobody's willing to do that, even though it's probably in their best interest now and in the long term, both for student athletes, if you want to call them that, but both for athletes and for universities alike, that like that's what you're doing. You have that chance. You have a chance to make that, the new system that's probably going to be beneficial for everybody. If you would just come out and say it. And I don't think the NCAA or the powers that be are willing to hit that yet. I wonder if they will be more willing to do that soon. It does seem like it's starting to shift in that direction, but I don't know when that's ever going to take place. And if it does, I will happily uh, laugh a little bit and say, good for you. Now make this work for the student athletes and make it work for these athletes. No doubt. 
And here's the thing. We've been pushing towards this for several years now, you know, especially with Ed O'Bannon's lawsuit and all that stuff. We knew this was coming, and it's 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 kind of sad to watch them hang on by the by their nails. Uh, to be to be totally honest with you, but uh, it's yet yeah. to be seen whether this is going to be positive uh, across the board. You know, not just for players. It's yet to be seen. But one positive thing about this virus, okay, and it's probably not a popular opinion, but it has ripped the mask off of several. Uh, well, I'm trying to not say anything improper. Uh, it, it, there's been a facade on many things, not just amateur athletics it, it it these guys they've made so much money on the backs of these players and treated them so poorly and they've gotten away yeah. with it and i think in 50 years we'll look back on this time and we'll say how did that happen yeah i can't believe we allowed this to i can't believe we allowed for this long a period of time to let 18 to 24 year olds be the backbone of an economic structure for a long-standing institution. We will. I think you're right. I think we're going to look back and, and you know, it'll take time. Obviously, you know, it'll be a generation or two generations down the line. But we're going to look back and go. I cannot believe we made young people carry the burden for this long for our economic gain. With, with no real positives. I mean, yes, you put them through school, and I don't know what graduation rates. I know they vary. Across yeah, 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 institutions. yeah. Listen, but, I'm, I'm not. I don't we, we used to smoke in airplanes. Ever you used to be able to yeah, light a cigarette in an airplane. This was like forty years ago. Yeah, things change, man. Things change, and you, you, and and you used to be able to say like, "Hey, the value of the scholarship seems like it is enough." Uh, and and now we're talking about a whole host of other issues, like sure. how bad continuing education is right now, how bad you, you, uh, collegiate academic education has become. Tenured professor tracks have been cut significantly. Adjunct professor numbers have skyrocketed. They're expected to do the same amount of work for a fraction of the pay and the quality of professors, quality of teachers, quality of education in college has significantly dropped the last 15 years, yet it costs more than it ever has. And these student athletes who are bringing in this significant amount of revenue that's keeping these universities functioning, now they're realizing and power to these guys, man, like good for Justin Fields, good for Trevor Lawrence, and it may not lead to anything this year but it's going to lead to something soon down the line because other people, other young people have taken notice that I'm more in control than I maybe realize. And I understand that it's a lot of us that, that want don't, don't want to rock the boat. And that's understandable. There is nothing wrong with wanting to just keep your head down, play sports, get your education and make the most of your college experience because that's going to help you as an individual down the line. There is nothing wrong with that. But I think athletes, uh, young young athletes in college are now recognizing that collectively they have way more power than they've ever had, uh, whether it's financially or in or, or through influence. They have way more power than than they, they they ever had in the past. So that's being recognized now. That's a good thing, I think, for for what you talked about, kind of ripping the facade off of a lot of this uh, quote unquote amateurism that's been taking place right under our noses for a long time. Sure, and I, I agree. I, I think what's going on with these petitions and this unionizing, essentially, and player parents writing letters to the Big Ten commissioner, I think these things will have lasting impact. Uh, a lasting impact on collegiate sports, not just in football. I can tell you here at home, uh, just our guys, raging Cajun football players, we have personal relationships with some of these guys, and even they, you can see it in them. They understand how much impact and how much say so they have 
And if it's happening in Lafayette, it's happening in Lincoln. It's happening in Tuscaloosa. It's happening everywhere. So I don't know. This is maybe the first shot across the bow. I think it's I think we're way down that road, actually, but maybe this is the first public shot across the bow. I think it has a lasting impact, but listen, we could do an entire another hour on just that <laughs> one particular topic, so I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but I will. I, I did want to ask this, being a Cubs fan and being uh, – I'm not from Chicago, but it's like my second city, been there a million times. What do you, what do you see the Cubs – well, first of all, are you sad that you didn't get to go to the bubble? That, that I didn't get to go where? What was that? To the bubble. In uh, in Mickey Mouse world, a little, a little bit, a little bit. I was because I, I think it just would, it would have been a really good experience. I think so. Yeah, a little bit, but not not too much. Well, it'd be another one of those those good stories for your broadcasting career to talk about later. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so anyway, and then my Cubs question. Of course, I got to get to the Cubs. What number one? What do you think we can do? And is the bullpen going to be solved anytime soon? I think uh, I, I think they're. I mean, they're playing great ball. They're in position to win, obviously, the division right now. Right. Uh, Milwaukee's pitching staff is struggling a little bit. St. Louis is just, you know, St. St. Louis is just getting going right now, but they're dealing with injuries and their pitching staff as well. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sold on the Cubs being in the playoffs. I think they can make a deep run. I think the small sample sizes, uh, you know, make for a little less randomness. I, I think uh, the best teams have a real shot to make, to the, make it to the playoffs, and we'll see what happens. But I, I think I think they'll be all right in terms of the Bulls. I, I I'm a huge fan of the front new front office that they brought in. I'm going to get to talk to Arturis Pranishovic uh, this week. Uh, you know the draft lottery is tomorrow. Right. You know Bulls are open for uh, for a top you know three pick. You know if they can get the number one, great. Um, and then we'll kind of figure it out from there. And what's a little bit of a lighter draft, you know. It's, it's, but but that's the job now. This front office is to develop. Like you want to be a developmental front office, which these guys are. Our first comes from Denver, where they were really good developmentally with a lot of young guys who have become, you know, more household names. To you know, Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, like he had a big hand in drafting those guys. So, uh, even if the the names don't pop out in the NBA draft this year, I feel like just having somebody who's a developmentally focused executive is a big, big step. I hate to inform you of this, Adam, but the New Orleans Pelicans are taking the number one pick again. Coming for you. <laughs> With a, with our one point, hey, you know our one point two percent chance, I you know what I did some of the I, I I called some seating games from not from the bubble like you know the games are in the bubble but we were working remotely and uh, I got to call a couple Pelicans games I like their young talent man I really do uh, I think uh, obviously their starting five is really good uh, but even like the guys behind them you know whether it's Jackson uh, Hayes. Just, there's a really you know Nico Lomelli is a really sharp shooter. Like I think there's a lot of decent talent, and the depth of that team is actually going to be really good next year. So I, I have a lot Nikhil of faith. Alexander Walker. I, he and he had a great bubble run. Like he, I think yes. he's a more than capable second to, uh, second point guard. He's, he's probably not. He's not at the point where he can handle the whole offense with the with the first unit. But he's a really good second unit point guard. Uh, and he's only a rookie. Uh, I think he's got a long way to go, and it's and it's a good thing. That's that's a lot. There's a lot of promise there with the right head coach. I think there's a lot of promise there. Absolutely, Adam Amin, our guest. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, we, we we wish you luck this year with the Bulls and and college football, whatever else you may be doing with Fox Sports, and uh, who knows, maybe we'll talk to you down the line. That sounds like a plan, boys. Appreciate you, Adam. It was awesome, man. Uh, continued success. Hope Fox treats you well. You're a great, uh, great talent, and uh, it's been great to watch your career, man. Take care. Thank you very much for uh, doing this for us. Yeah, thank you so much. Adam. Absolutely. Best thank of luck to you. Be you safe. Got it.
Yeah, you guys too. All right, bud. And there he goes, Adam Amin, Fox Sports broadcaster. Guys, that was that was a blast. Adam is awesome. Yeah that that was that was an absolute blast. Uh, we appreciate Adam coming on on uh, on this Wednesday. Our Big epi- day for the pod today. Yeah, you know our open house this morning with primary access, urgent care. Just now we sit down with Adam Amin. We will be recording again on Friday with Chris Vanini of the Athletic. So stay tuned mm. for. For that one as just well. Just keep bringing them in, baby. Just keep bringing them in. We're big yeah. game hunting, baby. I mean, that, that's just what we're trying to do. As always, guys, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Rage and Review Pod and Twitter as well. Email us, review at gmail.com, or visit the website, www.RageAndReviewPod.com. Thank you to our sponsors, Primary Access Urgent Care, Russo Exploration, Award Master, and Schilling Distributing. All right, guys, like we said, we will talk to you guys soon. Tell them, Moe. Award Master, located at 3219 Johnston Street, is the only award shop licensed by Louisiana Athletics. In business in Lafayette for over 45 years, Award Master creates one-of-a-kind trophies, medals, and awards using a wide variety of materials, including resin, glass, wood, acrylic, and more. Owners Adam and Sarah Lopez are proud UL alumni, as well as Cajun Cooking Club members. Adam and Sarah can also help with your business promotional items. Rage and Review trust Award Masters for all of their needs, and you will too. Award Masters is so much more than just an award shop. Give Award Masters a call today, 337-984-1414, or go to awardmaster.com. Award Master, the recognition and personalization experts.